<clears throat> All right, so our scripture reading uh, this morning is from Isaiah chapter six. I'm gonna read the entire chapter. We won't be uh, looking at the entire chapter uh, as of course through the message, but I'm gonna read the entire chapter. Uh, you can find it of course on your apps or in your Bibles at this time. Uh, this is Isaiah chapter six, the entire chapter. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and whom will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. He said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see their eyes sorry, see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, for how long, O Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remain in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leaf stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There we go. We didn't rehearse that part, apparently. <laughs> um, just uh, by way of introduction, let me start by saying, uh, you know, Obviously, like we said earlier, there's a, this is a, a time of a lot of fear and a lot of worry. Um, and that's not something that I'm going to pass by and not address. Uh, it's actually something that's been really weighing heavily on me as I've been on the phone with a lot of you and, and uh, hearing your stories of anxiety and concern about uh, what's going on out there and what the future holds. Um, but what we've decided to do is we've decided to continue with our series, Walking Through the Order of Service, uh, at this time, and we'll do that through Easter, whether it's in person or virtually, we don't know yet, uh, but we'll do that through Easter. And then uh, I'm going to actually preach an entire series kind of on how to handle troubled times uh, from a position of faith, and that will happen later in April. So we'll be dealing with this. If you if you are anxious now, I strongly encourage you to uh, listen to the sermon that I, I suggested to you last week, um, Praying Our Fears uh, by Tim Keller. Uh, it's a fantastic sermon on how to handle our fears and what to do with them. And I just direct you uh, 
uh, that way. But for now, we're returning to the subject of the elements of worship. And we've been talking about uh, trying to understand why do we do the things we do in worship? We go through a, a pretty typical order each week. And the question becomes, well, why do we do, that, do it this way? What's the point of doing it this way? And we began last time looking at um, the call to worship. And we said that, that uh, every human heart has this desire, this need to boast in something because life is dangerous. Who knew how prescient <laughs> that message was going to be? Um, but life is hard. The world is dangerous. The future is unknown. And so in order to cope, we boast in order to give ourselves confidence. And we talked about how as we ground ourselves in things, we hope that those things will enable us to deal with the difficulties of life. The problem is, is that we put our boasts in these things that aren't able to satisfy. They're not able to give us the kind of security that we need. They're things that uh, ultimately fail us. And therefore, when we meet for worship, the first thing we do is we hear the call to worship and then we sing the opening songs of praise. We're sort of prying our fingers off those other things. We're prying our hearts off those other, uh, other things. Like, look at COVID-19, okay? Many people, and I've talked to some people from our own congregation about this. Many people are, are being forced to ask the question, well, where have I been putting my hope? I mean, I say I've been putting my hope in the Lord. But functionally, practically, I've been putting my hope in other things. And I'm, that's being exposed to me as I face this pandemic along with everybody else. And so in the call to worship, we express that our boast is meant to be God as we, as we pull our hearts off these alternate idols, so to speak. What we're gonna look at today, though, is we're gonna look at the next element that we move to in worship, and we call it, in, in Grace Valley anyway, it's just called God cleanses, but it means the time of confession. It means the time during which we uh, confess our sin to God and we repent of that sin and we experience his forgiveness. And we have a pretty extended time of confession. Not all uh, church traditions do that, but we do. And of course the question is why? Why do we do it that way? Are we, are we masochists? You know, like the worse I feel, the holier I am. Is that it? No, that's not it. Remember, I just introduced this whole thing by saying our problem is idolatry. Our problem is that we put our trust in the wrong things. The question then is how do you break free of that? The answer is repentance through confession. When we own our sin, when we name our sin, we break the power of sin in our lives, or better yet, God breaks the power of sin in our lives. And therefore, repentance, confession, it is everything. Without true repentance, without real confession, you cannot experience the joy of knowing God. You can't. It is impossible. You know, um, you couldn't see me during this uh, worship service, because I was on the other side of the camera while the worship team was leading us in singing. But I had tears running down my eyes as we sang many of these songs, because the most powerful part of the service for me very often is the time of confession. Because during that time of confession, God shows his magnificent grace to me personally 
and individually in a way that just blows my mind week in and week out. That's why we sing, what's that song we sing? Glory, glory, hallelujah. Jesus, you are good. Your glory. And what's the, how does it start again? My life is yours. Keep going. You make this sinner holy for your glory is so beautiful. Okay. That song is basically the sermon, but you still have to hear the sermon. So here, what we're going to do, we're going to look at how repentance works from this passage. Okay. There's four things you need to know to understand how to repent, who God is, who you are, what sin really is, and how you can be healed. Those four things, one, two, three, four, let's go. First of all, If you want to truly repent and experience the joy of knowing God, you have to know something about who God is. Isaiah Isaiah 6 opens with Isaiah having a vision. And the vision he has is of the throne room of God. And of course, God is on his throne and his train fills the temple and there's there's smoke filling the temple and it's just this awe-inspiring scene. And then we read that these seraphs, which are angels, okay, are flying around and they have their faces covered and their feet covered, but they're flying around with their third pair of wings. It's pretty cool. Um, And they say, holy, 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 is the Lord Almighty. Now, this is the only place in the Old Testament where you get a triple like that, holy, holy, holy. You get doubles uh, in, in, the, in the Old Testament, but you don't get triples anywhere in the, in, the New Te- in the Old Testament. This happens once in the New Testament as well in the book of Revelation. And what it means when something is th- thrice something, when it's three times something, it means that that thing, that being is superlative, It is in a class all its own. It is utterly bright and brilliant and transcendent and other and beyond anything we could understand. Literally, the word holy means apart. And so when the seraphs say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, they're saying apart, 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 different, 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 transcendent, 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 beyond us, beyond us, beyond us is God. He is unbelievably beautiful. He is indescribably glorious. He is pure and righteous and just. He is like nothing else in existence. And that's why they actually have to cover their eyes. Think about it. Angels are pretty holy beings. They don't sin. You'd think that they could look upon purity because they're pure. But Jesus, God, sorry, is so pure that even the angels can't look upon it. Now, When we hear the call to worship and we go through our opening songs of praise, that's what we are faced with. We are faced with this profound holiness of God, this profound utterness, utter differencenesses of God. Just like Isaiah. And so Isaiah responds to that. So point one, already done. Point two. He responds to that. And how does he respond? Well, he sees himself for who he is. Notice that he says in verse five, he says, woe to me, I cried. Now, that's a curse. To say woe to me is to to pronounce a curse upon yourself. And Isaiah, when he's confronted with the otherness and the holiness and the glory of God, he sees himself for who he really is and he hates what he sees. 
He realizes that he is not everything that he thought he was. A little bit of background. Isaiah was part of the cultural elite, okay? Um, he was part of the royal family, and he was considered the man with the golden tongue. He was a very gifted orator, okay? And when you're in an oral culture, like we live in a written culture now, I don't know, visual, digital culture. Anyhow, when you're in an oral culture, you are considered brilliant when you have the power of speech the way he did. And he obviously was very wise and very brilliant. I mean, three years later, here we are studying his, his what he's written down. Uh, but he was arrogant and self-assured. In verse one, it says that this was in the, the year that King Uzziah died. That's when he saw this vision. Now, King Uzziah became king of Israel when he was a teenager, and he reigned for 52 years. That's a long time, right? And he was quite a successful king uh, by Israel's standards. Uh, but he was, in Isaiah's mind anyway, he was kind of stuck in the old ways, you know? He was, he was old school. Uh, he was analog. Isaiah was digital, right? Uh, and Isaiah and his cohorts, his, his compadres, his comrades, they were kind of waiting for Uzziah to die so that they could take over. They were gonna modernize the land and they had all kinds of new ideas and better ways of doing things. And so this is kind of the attitude that Isaiah had. Uzziah dies and then God reveals himself. And when God, when, when Isaiah encounters God, he sees just how pompous and prideful and, and impure he actually is. What does he say? Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips. Of all the things he could have said about himself, he chooses this, this the, the instrument of his worth, the instrument of his glory, the instrument of his own uh, sort of self-esteem, and he realizes that he is unclean. He's got a dirty tongue. Now, here's what he does, though. He just says it. I am a man of unclean lips. There's no qualifier around that. There's no codicil added to that. It's just, this is who I am. In other words, he takes responsibility. He admits who he is fully and completely. That's what true repentance requires. It requires that there are no excuses. There's no justifications for your sin. There's no blame shifting. There's no minimizing, okay? You take everything on your shoulders. Now, listen, Christian friends, you know this on one level, but you don't do this. I know you don't do this because I'm a pastor and the number of times that I've listened to people confess their sin to me and they tr do try to justify or minimize, you know, it's like, yes, uh, uh, I drink too much. Oh yeah, how much do you drink? Well, you know, I probably have two beers a day, which means they probably have six. That's typical of an addict anyway. Dallas Willard puts it this way. He says, much of what is called Christian profession today involves no remorse or sorrow at all over who one is or even over what one has done. There is little awareness of being lost or of a radical evil in our hearts, bodies, and souls, which we must get away from and from which God, only God can deliver us. 
To manifest such awareness today would be regarded, and certainly by most Christians as well, as psychologically sick. It is common today to hear Christians talk of their brokenness. We are all broken. But when you listen closely, you discover that they are talking about their wounds, the things they have suffered, not about the evil that is in them. They're not talking about their sin. You know, the Bible doesn't use the language of brokenness about us. We talk about it all the time. But the Bible doesn't use that language about us. The Bible calls us sinful. Let me illustrate what you have to do, okay? Um, if you take a log, you know, there's a log lying, you know, a six foot, eight foot log lying on the ground. If you pick up one end of that log and put it on your shoulder and it's very heavy and you try to throw it off, what happens? Bang, it comes back down and it slams back down on your shoulder and it hurts like crazy. If you want to really throw that log off your shoulder, what you have to do is, if you gotta shimmy your way up to the center of it, you gotta heave with all you've got, you've gotta get all the weight of that log onto your shoulder and then you can heave it off. Even if you just got it up for a second or two, you need to get all of it in order to heave it off. And the same is true with our guilt. If we say, I know I was wrong, but. I know I was wrong, but, you know, if you grew up in a family like I did, or if you understood the circumstances that I was facing, or if you understood, I am under a tremendous amount of stress right now. You're leaving part of the log on the ground. And this is what we do, and this is what our culture encourages us to do. The, the culture encourages us to, to look at our mess and to define it through the lens of a victim. Now, I know I'm simplifying, but this is a sermon. This isn't a, a four-part series on human psycho psychology. But understand this. When we do that, when we, when we don't take full responsibility for our actions and simply admit what we've done or who we are, we're actually diminishing our humanity. We're diminishing our humanity because look, kids, young kids, they're not fully actualized responsible adults yet. So we cut them some slack, right? We say, ah, you know, he's just a kid. And there's nothing wrong with that because they're not fully responsible or people who have diminished capacity. We, we say it's not, excuse me, it's not entirely their fault and understandably so. But when you're a fully, fully developed human being, you take full responsibility for what it is you've done or, or who it is you've hurt. You admit, as Isaiah does, that you are unclean. So the first thing you have to do is, is you have to see who God is. He is pure and holy and just. You gotta see who you are. You are someone unclean and impure and unjust. And then thirdly, you've gotta unmask the sin for what it really is. And what I mean by that? Uh, notice again, as we go back to the text, uh, in verse five, Isaiah, he says, I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And then he says this, and my eyes have seen the king, the Lord Almighty. The king. My eyes have seen the king. Remember, Isaiah was proud. He was thinking, I would be a much better king than Uzziah. 
me and my buddies, we could run this country a lot better than he's done. But then he sees the true king and his pride is shattered. See, that's what's under almost every sin I can think of is a measure of pride because, you know, see, you know what pride is? Pride is this. I want to be king. I want to be in charge. All sin is an attempt to take the throne from God to say, give me the crown. And it's obvious when we sin overtly, when we sin brazenly, when we sin boldly, like when you get in into sexual sin or you steal or you murder or something like that, that's clear. You know, 10 commandments say don't do that and you do that and you're saying, well, I wanna be the one who decides what I may or may not do instead of God. So it's clear and it's obvious and you can see it for what it is, but so much of our sin is subtle. It is subtle. Like think about this coronavirus stuff, okay? There's a lot of cause for concern. Of course there is. But not worry or panic. The reason I know that is, is because the Bible says, do not worry. It's a command too. Oh, it didn't make the Ten Commandments, although I can make a case for how it's in there, but I won't do that today. <laughs> um, but it's a command. And yet we do worry and yet we do panic. Why? Because underneath our panic and our anxiety is a desire for control. We still want the throne. If we want to know the future. We want to know what's going to happen. We, know, we want to know if we'll be okay. Many of those things, by the way, have been answered by Scripture, but, but we, want to, we want to be the ones to make sure that we know everything will be okay. You know, Dallas Willard says another great thing. You can tell I'm reading Dallas Willard right now. Okay? Um, he says another great thing. He says, there is a difference between wanting God to be God and wanting God to help you. See, we all want God to help us. Of course we do. We need his help. But when, when what we really want from God is that he help us, what we're saying is, I've got an agenda and I want God to meet it. But when you say, I want God to be God, you're saying to God, you know what is best and I trust that you will take care of me. And we need to unmask that in ourselves. And it can be a scary thing to do. I understand that, but... but you know, you know the old fairy tales where the monster takes a shape uh, that is beautiful, right? So they, they look like a prince or they look like a beautiful horse or, you know, these kinds of, these, they take these beautiful shapes. But then when the spell is broken, then their ugliness is revealed. This is what we need to do with our sin. We need to let God break the spell that's on us that, that tries to tell us that our sin is not such a big deal or that our sin actually isn't sin at all. But here's the thing. Fourth point. If we do, God can heal. He can heal. You know, in verse six, Isaiah, or, sorry, Isaiah makes this confession and then verse six says this. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. Okay, now here's the picture. Isaiah is sitting there. He confesses that he's unclean. And the very next thing that happens is this angel takes flame, a flaming hot ember out of the altar and flies at him with it. Now you gotta understand in the Old Testament, fire means judgment. 
And so here is, uh, here is Isaiah expecting, now that his sin has been exposed to God, that God's gonna judge him, and understandably so. But verse seven says, with it, that is the ember, the, the, the live coal, with it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your mouth. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. He goes to his tool, the very source of his sinfulness, those unclean lips, and instead of consuming him, instead of judging him, instead of damning him, God atones for it. And there's a brief side lesson here. I'll just, it's a throwaway line for you families to talk about later, but it's, it's worthwhile thinking about. God doesn't expose our sin to condemn us, never. He exposes our sin to heal us. There is a difference between judgment and discipline. When you are a child of God, God disciplines you. He doesn't condemn you. He doesn't judge you. Kids, this is a really good thing for you to know. When, you're, when you get caught by your parents for doing something wrong and you think, oh, rats, you should, you should give thanks. It is, a God's, it is God's mercy that you've been caught. And he means to heal you by it. And by the way, those of us who want to mete out judgment on other people, when people get caught in their sin, we should think about that. If God's purpose in catching others in their sin is to heal them, shouldn't our purpose, when we see others caught in sin, to be to move toward them to find healing as well? You see, for many, many people, unfortunately, repentance is traumatic. They say, I weep over my sin, but I feel worse. Or my habits just got worse. Or I get into this cycle of self-loathing and that's not helping and I can't get out of it. But see, that's remorse. That's not repentance. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 says this. If I can find it fast enough to keep all of your attention. Listen. Paul says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. You see, when you find yourself weighed down more by repentance. It's leading to death because that's godly sorrow. That's, sorry, that's worldly sorrow, not godly sorrow. Godly sorrow, Paul says, leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Means you walk away from it. It means you forget it. You put it behind you, just as the author to the Hebrews says. You throw off the sin that so easily entangles and you walk in faith. How do you know the difference? How do you know the difference? How do you know you're doing the difference? Well, ask yourself this question. When you grieve, do you weep over yourself or do you weep over your savior? Are you distraught over what's happened to you or are you upset about what's happened to others? Are you upset about what your sin has cost you or are you upset about what your sin has cost Jesus or has cost your your family or has cost your friends or has cost your church. See, the world says, oh, this is costing me. I screwed up and now I'm paying for it. But godly sorrow says, I've hurt my heavenly father. I've hurt my church. I've hurt my spouse. I've hurt my friend. I've, I've hurt people I love. 
But when you do that, you can be cleansed. You can be. You may not think it. Some of you are feeling so weighed down by stuff that's happened to you in your life and things that you've done, and you don't know if you could ever really be cleansed. You can be. You know who Chuck Colson is? He's died by now, obviously, but um, he he was a remarkable character, Chuck Colson. Um, he was a you know, a Marine, he went to law school, and then he ended up in the Nixon administration, and he became very powerful in the Nixon administration. He became known as Nixon's hatchet man. He did uh, uh, President Nixon's kind of uh, dirty work for him. And he went down and went to prison as, as a result of the Watergate scandal uh, that some of you uh, may have heard of. And while he was in prison, he underwent a serious conversion to Christ. And when he got out of prison, he completely left the halls of power. He turned his back on the political life and all that kind of stuff. Now, he was scorned by the media. And one of the things the media did was they took out the White House tapes. Now, the White House tapes were tapes of conversations that Nixon kept. While he was in the Oval Office, he had every conversation uh, that he had with, his, um, with people, particularly his own advisors, he had them taped secretly, they didn't know. And you can hear them today, they're on public record. You can go to, well, I don't know where you'd go, but you can go and find them and hear them. And Colson is on there saying the most horrible things about people and how to take them down, how to destroy them. And yet, Colson lived his life with his head held high. How? Can you imagine if everything that you said this week was available for download for anybody to listen to? It's the same answer as for Isaiah because the fire didn't consume him. You see, centuries after Isaiah lived, the Bible tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world and he was God in the flesh. And when he came down, the temple shook, just like as Isaiah saw the temple shake when he had this vision inside the throne room of God, well, the temple shook when Jesus, when Jesus uh, died on that cross. And when he was in the garden, he cried out, woe is me as well, but no angel came to cleanse him. And when the fire came down on Calvary, it didn't atone, it didn't atone for him because he had nothing to atone for. He was sinless, but it did consume him. It enveloped him so that you, me, Isaiah, Chuck Colson, we could be cleansed. We could be healed. He did that for you. He did that for me. He did that. And he was glad to do it. Now, you can't taste the beauty of that. You can't experience tears during the time of confession, tears of joy. Those, those are what I have, by the way, when I say that I cry during the time of confession. You can't have tears of joy during the time of confession unless you know that, unless you know that. Oh, sure, you can have tears of remorse just like Esau had when he lost the, lost the birthright and he was weeping and wailing over it, but it was all about him and how awful he was and how he had screwed up. But when you have this, your savior dying in your place, washing you clean, you come to him to confess, not because he doesn't know and you're afraid that he'll find out, but because he knows everything and accepts you already and anyway, and in spite of it. 
And after you're forgiven, look what happens. Look what happens. God says to Isaiah, he says, hey, uh, I have a mission. Will someone go for me? And Isaiah says, I'll go. And God says, go. He's immediately affirmed. He's not rejected. He's put to work in the kingdom. And God will use you in his kingdom too for his redemptive purposes, not just in your life, taking away your sin, but using you to bless the world. Sinner that you are, but redeemed saint that you've become. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, teach us to confess. Teach us to confess truly, openly, honestly, lay down our pride, admit where we've gone wrong so that we can experience your forgiveness, so that we can be cleansed, and so that we can live our lives free from condemnation, not just from you, but from our own voices and from the devil who is constantly accusing us and trying to undermine our assurance. Father, shut his mouth. And may we look to the cross whenever we wonder, can I be forgiven? And may we see our Savior there saying yes. Yes, a thousand times yes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.